Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. You ever try to help somebody with something only to make it worse? I know my wife, when she likes to bake some things, she asks the children to help at times. And one of my favorite things to step back and watch is the way Levi helped just the other week by pouring a little extra cocoa in the mixing bowl. Instead of helping the situation, he only made it worse. I dare say most of us don't realize that when we try to add to what God has already said, we actually only make it worse rather than better. When we take away what God has already prescribed, we make it only worse, not better. This morning we're going to look at whether or not we're a help or a hindrance. Are we a help or a hindrance? In Acts chapter 15, we're going to be looking at three things here specifically. Number one, the distorted tradition in verses 1 through 5. Number two, the accurate analysis, verses 6 through 12. And number three, the concise conclusion in verses 13 through 21. You see, Paul is back here in Antioch with the disciples, and he gets a wonderful visit from some that didn't like the way that he was operating. And as we start off here, we're going to look at the distorted tradition here in verses 1 through 5. Turn there, and let's read together. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. You see, what's interesting here is Paul and Barnabas, as they're in the Antioch of Syria, these men come from Judea, the area of Jerusalem, to dispute with them whether the Gentiles were really saved or not. Think about that for a moment. Paul is out on a missionary journey, and people come from a completely different city, different town, only to come, come and confront him on the fact that the people that have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ are not really saved. They said that you ultimately have to circumcise them for them to have a true identity with Christ. If you're not circumcised, you are not saved. That's what they were saying. This turned into a debate, as we see here in the text, to the point of being something that needed to be settled in Jerusalem, something that was to be brought before the apostles and elders there as well. Now, on the way back to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas are excited to share the good news of the Gentiles coming to saving faith with the, the people, the disciples, as they meet them on their way back. And those, those that they, they actually shared this with were encouraged by the testimony. Ultimately, they arrive in Jerusalem. And as they share what God has done, they're met with opposition from Pharisees who apparently had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What's incredible is that Paul, who's a skilled debater, and I'm sure if you've read the New Testament, you know that Paul knows how to build arguments. 
he brings us back to the elders and the apostles for a discussion or debate, if you will. Paul still knew how dangerous this teaching was that he was willing to go back and bring this case before the apostles like Peter to make sure that this was not something that was taught in the church overall. Because frankly, this was a teaching that was potential to actually carry the, tr the church into heresy and false teaching. Unfortunately for many of us, we don't realize it, but we all have the potential to become legalists ourselves. And what I mean by legalists is adding to something that's not a requirement for salvation. In fact, if you've ever been guilty of saying this, you may be a legalist. A real Christian would never drink alcohol. A real Christian would never swear. A real Christian would never have a tattoo. A real Christian would not wear so much makeup. A real Christian would not skip church on Sundays. A real Christian would not use any other version but the King James Version. If the king ain't on it, the king ain't in it. That's kind of how some people say it. I've just about declared all of us unbelievers by listing all those off. Because I know folks in the church that have tattoos. I know folks in the church that are not here this morning. By the way, you are saved. And we also, also know that some of us have lost it a time or two with our tongue, right? Sometimes certain words just don't cut it when we get angry, right? At least for some of us. We know better, but we still have them come out. We didn't negate our salvation. And sadly, what many of us do is without even realizing it, we add to what Scripture doesn't state. R.C. Sproul states the following regarding legalism. The legalist isolates the law from the God who gave the law. He is not so much seeking to obey God or honor Christ as he is to obey rules that are devoid of any personal relationship. We have no right to keep up restrictions on people where he has not stated restriction. Many people think that the essence of Christianity is following the right rules, even rules that are extra-biblical. For example, the Bible doesn't say that we can't play cards or have a glass of wine with dinner. We can't make these things the external test of authentic Christianity. That would be a deadly violation of the gospel because it would substitute human tradition for the real fruits of the Spirit. He's right on point here. The fact that these Pharisees made it a point to state that it was necessary to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses put them at odds with what Paul was stating. They both couldn't be right. This is why we see here in the text the elders and the apostles need to be accurate in their analysis of the situation itself. Number two, accurate analysis, verses 6 through 12. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do we test God by putting a yoke on the neck 
of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now what we see here is there seems to be quite a debate going on. And all of a sudden Peter stands right up and he this is the same Peter, by the way, that Paul calls out for hypocrisy as well. So don't assume that just because Peter gets this one right that we don't get things wrong. Peter stands right up. And he tells them specifically that we're not to add unnecessary burdens on these people. Ones that God does not command. In fact... Just as the Holy Spirit did for them, he did for the Gentiles in cleansing them the same way. He then makes a striking statement. He says that they're testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples that their own fathers and they themselves could not bear under. They weren't able to do it themselves. Essentially, we failed to keep God's law ourselves. What are we doing? Putting that on them as a requirement for faith. Christian, be very careful. Putting a requirement on others in areas that you've failed is legalism. Plain and simple. Why would we put an extra requirement if that is not there for salvation? That's what Peter's getting at, essentially. Church, grace is undeserved. If any of us could ever deserve it, it is no longer grace. It's unmerited favor from God. Church, we need to get this to resonate in our hearts. We're not worthy no matter how many things we've done right. It doesn't matter if you give of all your money. You're not worthy. It doesn't matter if you finally did the kind deed for the day. You're not worthy. It doesn't matter that if you woke up this morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You're not worthy. And that's not many of us anyways. Some of us need our coffee before we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Truth is, no matter how many religious duties we've performed this past week, we're never worthy and never will be. It's only the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves any of us to begin with. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that so many of us ignore every day. And we try to live the Christian life without His help. And we wonder why we struggle as much as we do. And we wonder why we don't do the things that God's called us to. Because we look at the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts rather than the proper relationship between the Father and us. Unfortunately, some of us have emphasized certain scriptures above others. So certain things we like that the Bible says, so we emphasize it. And we, we kind of swing from extremes on this. There's, there are those that love the condemnation verses and they dwell on them all the time. I'm still condemned. I'm a horrible sinner. There's no real victory in this life. And it's true. But you need to counterbalance that with your more than conquerors with Christ. And then you have those that stand on that part and they don't notice the sin that they fall into. It's dangerous as we swing from extremes in our Christian life. 
Listen to what Stephen Anderson points out about this. He says, we should preach and teach salvation by grace through faith in Christ and nothing more. Any discussion of godly living and standard of conduct are premature for anyone who is considering the truth of the gospel. And for those who have believed, any discussion of behavior must be divorced from a conversation of whether they are saved. Oh, for some of us, man, that's just, that doesn't feel right. What do you mean I can't make a statement based on someone's conduct? You and I do not know the souls of men. We do not know how the Spirit's working in others' lives. The only one that you and I really can even know is ourselves, but even then our heart can be deceitful. Which is one of the reasons why the only assurance many of us will ever have is if we obey God's Word. That's what Scripture says. We know that we love Him if we keep His commandments. There's an assurance there. In fact, what happens here is Peter stands up and just declares that we're all saved by the same undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's a Gentile or a Jew, it doesn't matter. We're both undeserving equally. And I want you to picture this. Suddenly, it's silent in the room. They had just been disputing and debating. But as Peter says, this is completely quiet. It's almost as if no one had an argument to be made. Case closed. Peter is considered by many to be the chief apostle, if you will, so there was no usurping his authority here. It's with this silence that Paul and Barnabas get the opportunity to reinforce the point that was just made about how God had moved in the Gentiles. And he brought them to saving faith as well by the same supernatural means that he did the Jewish people. We should never look to add anything to the gospel message than what's already declared. Lest we make the gospel message void. Our standards, even if they come from Scripture, cannot dictate the salvation of any other soul. That's not to say that there are not certain standards that all of us should follow in the local church as we see the letters written to the churches. But from a salvation standpoint, we cannot add what is not there as a qualifier, church. We could never do that. It's all of grace and none of our own doing. Number three, the concise conclusion, verses 13 through 21. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. And here's his concise conclusion, if you will. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, 
from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So what James here, is the bro who's the brother of Jesus, a leader, an elder in the church is doing, is he's reinstating certain things to confirm the point that Peter's making about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God had already made a way for the Gentiles to be saved. It was already prophesied. Who are we to argue with God on this? Gentiles were not, even, were not mentioned as becoming Jewish in any of the Old Testament prophecies. Especially in Ames chapter 9, chapter 9 verses 11 through 12, which he's quoting from. Here's an important point to pause and, and just consider. James found it important to back up his position from the Word of God. If you're going to make a statement of what God says, make sure you're quoting God's Word. I believe that is wrong to do. Well, is it or not? Can you build the argument from Scripture rather than your opinion? That's very subjective to many of us. These men found it important to back their position by Scripture. Even though they were apostles. They should not trouble, this is what James is saying, those coming to Christ. Imagine that you have people telling you you're not really saved unless you tithe every week, pray for two hours a day, and make sure that you read your Bible for an hour a day. You're not really saved unless you do those things. That's essentially what these people were trying to implement. You're only really saved if you do these things. Which is sadly the backwards way most religions operate today. And if it enters the church, it's even more dangerous. Because we are the ones that should know the pure, unadulterated Word of God. And unfortunately, many religions build their idea of, if you will, redemption at the end by what you do. Christianity has never been built that way and will never be built that way. It was built on the finished work of Christ. Amen. That's it. It's not built by you and me. Remember, Paul makes this statement later on in the, other, in, in the books that he writes, the foundation has been laid, it's Christ. You don't get to fix that. And unfortunately, a lot of people want to replace the foundation with their good works in many a church. Essentially, what James is getting at here is there's a potential for them to make it more difficult for the Gentiles to merge with the Jewish believers due to the added burdens that were not required for them to follow. Could you imagine the discouragement on a Gentile's face if they were told they now have to do everything the Jewish people have done, even though it's really not a requirement? What James concludes with here is that there are some things that should be spelled out for the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, to work well together in harmony together. One of the things he mentions is eat meat, eating meat offered to idols, things strangled or even blood were all things that were repulsive to the Jewish community. And essentially what James is getting at here is that this would be an offense that would cause a stumbling block to the Jewish believers. 
it was such an important point here that those who were not particularly, they were not particularly dietary restrictions. Even Paul later on spells that out in other books. But as Paul himself points out, that if they are a stumbling block to somebody else, you should not do them. It's best not to flaunt the liberty we have. It's also not best to control people by what we hold to outside the Word of God as a standard. The sexual immorality that's, that's dealt with here is more than likely tied into the pagan practice of that day. But essentially, throughout Scripture, sexual immorality was not to be practiced, period. In fact, Jesus goes a step further and says, you've committed adultery in your heart. You don't have to commit the physical act. God is still opposed to it. What James is doing here is laying a groundwork for the Gentiles in joining fellowship with Jewish believers. And I don't know how many of you understand this, but many churches from different cultures worship slightly differently. And unfortunately, I think it, sometimes when you're in one culture setting for so long, you don't understand some of the intricate details that sometimes need to be worked out in multicultural churches. He's essentially asking the Gentiles to show some restraint in these areas for the sake of the brethren without becoming a means of a stumbling block to them. At times, we ought not to flaunt our Christian liberty with those that we may offend or cause to stumble. And we're going we're gonna to break that down a little bit because I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what causing a stumbling block to somebody is. Ways we can be a stumbling block. We're going to park here for a little bit because I think this is so important to make sure we define it well. Number one, flaunting what hurts others' conscience. Flaunting what hurts others' conscience. What do I mean by that? Things like alcohol. Things like eating certain foods that someone forbids themselves from eating. That's possible. That's in the text. Possessions. Even music choices. There's a lot of different things we can go down the path and discuss. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9-13, here's what Paul says. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If someone you know in the church has a strong conviction against a certain genre of music, what you ought not to do is slowly warm them up to it. That would be a violation of their conscience. As light and pathetic as it may seem to some of us. The reason I mention possessions is because you may very well be able to afford some things others can't. And if you flaunt that, may, that may give them the impression that that's what matters in the Christian life, is God is a genie that gives you these things, and that's what they should pursue. Do you see how that could be a stumbling block? Instead of pursuing Christ, we're pursuing the things. And unfortunately, that's a learned habit from many. 
How do I know that? Well, we, we tend to cool off in our walk with Christ based on the people we're around. Do we not? If a person's red hot, passionate about the things of Christ, we're around them, we tend to find ourselves passionate as well, particularly if we're of that state already. And we continue. If a person's kind of slacked in their walk with Christ and we're spending time with them, many of the bad habits that they have, we now form. Which unfortunately is how many stumbling blocks are laid by believers. Oh, we're free to do certain things, of course. But when you know someone's convicted about something and yet you still kind of push them your way, that's a violation of their conscience and ultimately sinning against Christ. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't view their pursuit of stuff as a stumbling block for others, but it is. Number two, and I think this one's even more dangerous, and most people do not pay attention to this one. Misquoting of Scripture. Misquoting of Scripture. One of the most dangerous things in the church is a constant misquoting of Scripture when it comes to sin itself. Which is one of the reasons why many churches today are always causing stumbling blocks to their people. And they don't even realize it. In fact, this is precisely what Satan does with Eve right in the beginning. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the, the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, essentially what Satan's doing here in tempting Eve is he's questioning what God really said. What's even more interesting is that Eve responds as the first legalist in Scripture, adding a phrase that God never spoke. We can't touch it. Was that enough to keep her from sin? Which is why legalism is dangerous. Always will be. What Satan essentially ends with here is an outright denial of the promise of death. He says, you're not surely going to, you're not really going to die. And he wraps it into the promise that God is denying you the opportunity to truly know yourself. You are a God. God is keeping you from your full potential, your godlike status. You are divine. That's essentially what Satan's getting at here. Unfortunately, this right here is where many in the church do not even realize when they talk to their children about reaching their full potential, that many times that full potential is outside the Word of God. You want to lay a stumbling block to your children, parents? Tell them that they can be the best that they can be apart from the Word of God. Mothers and fathers in the church who push their children to succeed in school, athletics, careers, without so much as spending half that time in discipling them, are laying a stumbling block before them.
and we wonder why our priorities are not Christ and His Word. Some Christian parents are proud enough that their children knew how to use a condom but then, and didn't get anyone pregnant rather than sexual purity before God. They're proud enough that their children didn't screw around too bad rather than teaching them the pure Word of God. They lay these stumbling blocks before their children. Well, my children are a little better than those parents' children, so I'm good. I didn't know that we were playing this comparison game in the church, but we do. I didn't know that that's what God required of us, is to just outdo somebody else. Sexual purity is frowned upon by many in the church today as legalism, and it's not. Rather than a proper understanding of conduct that is pure and right before God, parents belittle the fact that their children ought to walk pure lives before God. And they belittle it by not making a big deal when their children mess up, by not correcting them biblically. Parents, what you think about certain things, your children are going to think. Listen, here's the truth, and this is where I tremble when I studied this text and the stumbling blocks that we all lay, because I know I'm a father and I have three boys I'm raising myself. All of us have a past, myself included. And unfortunately, some of us have never owned the potential of our past sinful behavior being a stumbling block for our children in the future. Ask yourself if you've ever asked God for forgiveness for the things that you and I have done in the, in the dark before we were ever married. You know how many of us try to pretend those things aren't reality? We really didn't do those things. And we get upset at our children for doing those things. And we never help them back up biblically to repent and work through that sin before God and restore fellowship with Him. Our refusal to see reality in these areas will be a stumbling block to our children and the future generations to follow. In case you think I'm being a little too strong here, I want you to listen to Jesus' words and forget what Pastor Roman just said to you. Listen to what Jesus says about causing little ones to stumble or sin. Matthew 18, 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's what Jesus thinks when we mess around with the children that ought to live for him. What your children need, parents, is not for you to misquote Scripture and telling them that God loves them the way they are and they don't have anything that needs to be different. That they need to discover themselves. This garbage that's infiltrated the church today. Tell them to discover what God says about them rather than what they think. Or even you, for that matter. Because we're flawed. And unfortunately, a lot of Christian parents assume better about their children than what Scripture says. And unfortunately, some are happy with their kids being morally a little better than the others, so they think that's enough. You can have moral pagans in your home. Parents. What our children need is for us to show them that the Word of God is the standard we aren't. And that we are flawed parents ourselves. That we were their age once, and we blew it before God as well. Some of you all need to have the heart-to-heart -heart with your children someday as they get older and share with them the areas that God worked in your life.
Stop pretending that was never reality. One of the most dangerous things for any of us to do is what Peter actually does with Jesus when Jesus tells him that he's going to go to the cross. Peter responds by telling Jesus, no, this can't be right. You can't, this can't happen to you. What's interesting and fascinating about that text is Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you are literally a tool of Satan right now. You're seeing things through man's perspective, not God's. You want to be a stumbling block to your children, to those around you, to those that you want to disciple? Start sharing with people through our human lens rather than the divine lens of the Word of God. Listen, I enjoy a good conspiracy like anybody else. I do. But if there's one thing that I know surpasses all of it is the revealed Word of God. Don't put stock and other things above the Word of God. Be careful. It's a dangerous thing for all of us to fall into. They could be good things. They don't all have to be terrible things. But they can be a stumbling block to your children, to, the, to those around you. When we think of building up our children's self-esteem rather than their worth before Christ, we've done them a big disservice. A child needs an accurate reflection of who they are personally, but they need that standard to come from God's Word. Which is one of the saddest things is that so many parents want their children to be happy and they don't realize that sometimes that is one of the worst things they could wish for their children. Because happiness is fickle. It's not based on the Word of God. Our children need to know how their Heavenly Father cares for them and views them, rather than the way that they see themselves apart from the Word of God. So knowing that we cannot abuse the Scripture by adding the Gospel message, the qualification for saving faith itself, the way we practice our faith in the local church matters. So let's finish with this question. Do you help or hinder? Do you help or hinder? If your life is one that's lived out as the perfect legalism with all the rules followed, but your heart is not in the right place, is that pleasing to the Lord? Do you find yourself judging others walk with God more than you ought to, to the point of questioning their salvation because they don't meet your standard? You need to stop. There's so many people I do wish that they would do things differently in their life, but I also know that the Holy Spirit has a lot of work to do on all of us, including myself. Have you just forgotten how undeserving grace really is that you somehow think your performance is what keeps you saved? Listen, if you realize that something is undeserved, you're going to live in gratitude like you've never lived before. I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of the things in my life that I see God blesses me with that I find undeserving only prompts a response of I can't help but want to do something in return. You see, so many of us are always thanking God for what he's done for us. So few of us ask God how we can serve him. 
Instead of praying prayers of God, help me with this. God, do this for me here. God, please take care of my family. God, please do this. All of them are proper requests. Ask God how he wants you to do certain things. How can I be a better help for my children rather than just asking God to somehow make sure that they're okay? How can I make sure that I'm discipling others the way that God would want me to rather than just asking God to bless my discipleship group? Maybe you're the type that's beating yourself up to the point of doubting your own salvation at times. Maybe you're the type that realizes your performance is so terrible that you must not be saved. Can I be an encouragement to you on that? If there's a struggle, there's life. If you're struggling against the sin nature, that's a good sign. It's not a bad sign. I want you to be encouraged by that. The most dangerous place to be is when you don't hear any prompting, you don't repent of any sin. That is the most dangerous place to be for any Christian. And unfortunately, that's a lot of Christians who step out of the church. They've been baptized as little children. They live in the world. Nothing bothers them anymore. They have their salvation all set, so they don't need to worry about eternity. That prompting of the Holy Spirit needs to be there. That's the sign of life. Are those around you helped or hindered by your walk with God? Ask yourself that. Do the people around me, do they, do they feel like they're helped in their walk with Christ or do they feel like they're hindered in their walk with Christ when they're around me? Your life demonstrates one of the two. Do you lead others to discover themselves or the way that God sees them in his word? Listen, church, we need to be very careful what we encourage each other in. Some of that encouragement is blasphemy before God. Some of it is not from the word of God. It's from our own opinion and things that we've concocted based on some thought and analysis that we put into it. Here's my last question. What would you be willing to give up? As Paul said, he would not eat meat if it broke down his brother. What would you be willing to give up in order for others to know Christ in a more intimate, personal life?